0: Today's scripture comes from a number of um, places. We have Genesis 2, 1 to 3, Exodus 20, 1 to 2, and 8 to 11, Deuteronomy 15, Matthew 1128 28 to 30, Hebrews 4, 9 to 10. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. But the seventh, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work of creating that he had done. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord our God. On it you shall do no work, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day, Therefore the Lord blessed the sabbath day and made it holy Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the sabbath day Come to me all you who are weary and Burdened and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Sister Wendy. And know that's not a typo. We have been rehearsing the same sequence of passages over the last few weeks as we have been studying this uh, sub sermon series um, on the topic of Sabbath rest. Today concludes that sub-series. And um, because of that, we're actually going to have a brief time of Q&A right after the sermon, Uh, a chance for you to ask questions in real time right here. This is something we used to do every week, a normal practice in our church because of the pandemic. We set it aside for a little bit, but we'd like to start crawling back into that habit. And so if you have any questions, scribble them down draw them to mind and you can ask me in just a few minutes. So without further ado, let's look at this topic one more time. Let's pray together first. God, we exhale together, maybe even literally acknowledging that our lives are full of noise and voices, words that direct and compel us, sometimes even more than we know. At this time, we're asking for an inward kind of silence that's only possible by your Holy Spirit. That we might be able to hear your voice, your words, that they might fill and direct our hearts, our minds, our lives, reorienting us to the truth of the gospel and of the reality of God. So do what only you can do in these next few minutes and bless this time. As we hear from you, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, our Savior, and our God, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Imagine, just imagine, working, working tirelessly for decades as an orator, a journalist, historian, and an author of 56 books, serving as a cabinet minister, a lawmaker for over 63 years, and eventually prime minister. Imagine absorbing the stress and anxiety of occasional very public failure, and also the relentless pressure of leading a nation from the brink of defeat to victory during World War II. And all this while being married for 55 years and helping to raise four children. What would you do if this were you? And where would you turn in the midst of it all for rest and refreshment? I'm speaking, of course, about Winston Churchill, the British statesman from the last century, And what was his answer to that question about rest and refreshment in his quite busy and full and trial-filled life? What was his answer? For years, amid all the hubbub and the exhaustion, Churchill would regularly stop, set up an easel in his home, oftentimes outdoors, sometimes even during his travels to Egypt, Italy, or Morocco, and he would paint and paint and paint, eventually creating over 550 paintings across his lifetime as a source of joy and respite from the stress of his work. He once wrote, just to paint is great fun. The colors are lovely to look at and delicious to squeeze out. Almost a childlike quality to the way that he described that performance of rest, as it were. A childlike quality, indeed, that was true of how he painted. But why, of all things, did Churchill, of all people, like to paint? Well, he actually tells us in a book that he wrote called Painting as a Pastime, and in one section, while reflecting on different ways that people seek and find rest and refreshment from their work, this is what he writes. Some advise exercise and others repose. Some counsel travel and others retreat. Some praise solitude and others gaiety no doubt all these may play their part according to individual temperament, but the element which is constant and common in all of them is change. Change is the master key. Why did Churchill, in other words, love to paint As a form of rest, why was it so effective in sustaining him even through deep and hard trials? Precisely because painting isn't what he normally did during his daily grind. The writing and speaking and strategizing and decision making. What replenished him was a decisive change in activity. And so if your work requires heavy physical activity say, you move equipment or you stock shelves or you have to chase toddlers around the room, Uh, maybe for you change might entail doing something that brings more of an inward rest, a a stoppage of your body, a refreshment of mind with a, a book or a movie or with music. Or or maybe your work requires of you just the opposite, requires you to sit at a desk for hours on end. Maybe that change that results in Sabbath rest for you might require moving your body a little bit more. Or even if you normally get around during the week by car, maybe for Sabbath you walk. Or if you normally walk, maybe you ride your bike or you take public transportation. Exodus 20, where God presents Sabbath rest as the fourth of the Ten Commandments, describes this Sabbath as holy. That's just a word that means set apart, different. It's meant to be a day of change. It's change, after all, that so often brings us Rest. What might that look like for you as you and I and we as a community grow together in Sabbath? Churchill's example offers some insight into the wise and effective practice of Sabbath in the Christian life. And we've been focusing on this topic over the last two weeks, and we've been approaching this as an invitation from God to rest. Maybe it's a surprising thing for you to hear that the God of the Bible isn't there demanding that you do more for him, but rather that you rest and receive from him. The principle of grace, the story of redemption that we find in Christ. It's an invitation from God to embrace a new life-giving rhythm of work and then rest, of work and then rest, and to do so by structuring our lives around a cycle of ceasing and restoring and feasting, pausing from our daily work at the end of each day and also at least for one full day each week or if you're in a unique vocational season of life, Maybe the mom of a nursing infant or maybe your shift work requires you to work every day of the week. Then setting aside at least three hours on a day, you can do that as part of your Sabbath. And not only stopping and pausing, but filling up your time with things that positively replenish and refresh your body and your soul. So we're continuing to explore, again, what it looks like to practically restore ourselves, to do things that replenish us. But before we get more into that, I want to talk briefly about this. Why it's so hard to do this. Uh, The first point in our time together here is this. Sabbath is for freedom. Sabbath is for freedom. Notice in our readings, the first or the second reading is Exodus 20. Again, the first time that God lays out the Ten Commandments. And there, when he does so, he points his people, not only to this command, but to the grounds of this command. He says in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, so stop. Why? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day, therefore, be like God and stop. In other words, in Exodus 20, God points to the story of creation as the reason why we should practice Sabbath. It's who we are. It's how we've been made. It's built into our creational design. Don't violate it. God wants you to stop. But now here, In Deuteronomy 5, Moses repeats this command of Sabbath, but this time in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, he gives a different reason, different grounds for practicing the Sabbath. Verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So this time he grounds the Sabbath command, not in creation, but in redemption. And with a deep and vivid reminder, once you were slaves, now you are free. So stop. Keep in mind, God's people, having just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, having been delivered into the arms of God and his grace, were still a people who only knew work, no rest. They had, for generations, been treated like machines, not human beings. Where the only measurement of their worth was their efficiency and productivity, and some of us live in the same way. And we live in a culture that reinforces this self image, that messages to us that that is the defining quality of your worth in this world, your output. The speed with which you can get the job done. And so, day in and day out, it begins in our heart, the idols, of course. But those things are reinforced by the messages of the world around us. It's what makes Sabbath really hard, it's what makes it uh, uh, an almost counter cultural practice, going against the grain. Of the prevailing culture. And what that means then is that Sabbath requires a deliberate fight against the patterns and demands of everyday life. We live, don't we, after all, in a world of commoditization of human beings of the labor of our hands, where we are too often treated like machines and we treat one another as such as well, demanding endless production, evaluating, again, people's worth only by what they can or are perceived to be able to contribute to our world. Not only commoditization, we also live in a culture of self-actualization, Where the demand is placed upon you, haven't you noticed, to create your own image and your own identity. Hence why we have this epidemic of even young children in their teen and tween years being wrapped up in social media, trying to project a certain me to the world, dressed in a certain way, doing the right things, and here's the problem, it doesn't change in adult life, does it? where we have a constant engine, a motor that keeps us going, producing, making, in order to make sure that we measure up. And before you know it, we've surrounded ourselves in our heads and in our lives with taskmasters, indeed slave drivers, taskmasters called self-improvement, Taskmasters called the career that I deserve and need to have to be a somebody in this world. Even taskmasters that are well intended but distorted in our hearts including the ways in which parenting can be twisted into uh, something where you are task-mastered into constantly trying to create a certain experiential life for a child, or educational advantage, or the optimization of experience pursued through endless extracurricular activities that you cannot stop producing and providing. And so it's no surprise that we're exhausted. And it's no surprise, therefore, that to resist this, to practice Sabbath, requires a bit of a fight, a fight of faith. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament professor and author, has written very helpfully with this language that the refusal to define life by productive work requires a mighty act of resistance. He also writes, Sabbath declares in bodily ways that we will not participate in the anxiety system that pervades our social environment. We would not be defined by busyness and by acquisitiveness and by the pursuit of more in either our economics or our personal relations or anywhere in our lives. The Sabbath is a call, isn't it? To resist participating in the anxiety systems of our world. To refuse to be defined by your busyness, productivity, and your work, which is not to say that your work is bad, it's blessed and given to you by God. But nothing is meant to define you as a human being except the grace of God itself. Not long before God gave this Sabbath command, when Moses and Aaron began to confront Pharaoh to let God's people go, Pharaoh literally said these words in Exodus 5:4, get back to your work. Here in the Bible, we find a God, a Savior, even Jesus in Matthew 11, that says almost the opposite: I will give you rest. Pharaoh says, Get back to your work. Jesus says, I will give you rest. Choose your master. Whom will you serve? Sabbath is an invitation to the heart of a God of grace. A God who actually loves you. Not just what you do. Who loves you. And not just what you produce, who loves you for you, and not just for what you can do for him. To keep the Sabbath, dear friends, is to say with all faith and with all joy, to declare, I am not a slave. Not to my work not to the demands of this world, not to self-imposed pressures that I might have to produce and perform. I am not a slave. I am by God's grace free. Which is another way of saying, it's an invitation to be a human being all over again. It's an invitation to, to wholeness. Uh, to to reverse what is so often our tendency to, to be a disintegrated and fragmented person, pulled and torn in a thousand different directions, not knowing which piece out there, which fragment is really you. Sabbath, as author Mark Buchanan poignantly wrote, Sabbath is a refusal to go back to Egypt. And friends, if this is such a a powerful invitation for us, is it not also one of the sweetest invitations we could possibly extend to our neighbors as well? Second point, Sabbath is for neighbor. You say, how so? Sabbath is a witness to our neighbors in a weary world in a Sabbath-starved world. Sabbath is an opportunity for us to model for our neighbors a life of rest centered upon a God of rest. Here's what we have to notice here. As God gave the Sabbath command in Exodus 20 and also Deuteronomy 5, it wasn't just new to the Israelites, it was new to the world. That all throughout the Old Testament, as God's people were invited to practice the Sabbath on a routine, rhythmic basis, they were doing something that was highly unusual in contrast to the cultures that surrounded them. It was one of the most distinguishing features of life of faith in Israel. It distinguished God's people from people from other cultures and nations. In other words, it's supposed to be weird. It always was. But in its weirdness, as it were, Sabbath is meant to be the attractive thing that everyone desperately wants and needs, but has no clue how to get it. And we find it in God. What would it look like, friends, for you and I to practice Sabbath on a routine basis? Again, not just the activities or the ceasing of activity that we do, but of producing in our practice of Sabbath a life where we are more fully present and attentive, where we live with more margin, where there's more breathing room and literally breathing that marks our lives? What would it be like to live in such a way where our neighbors begin to remark, perhaps, I know you have a demanding job, yet somehow you seem refreshed. How is that? I know your life is very full. We talk about that often, but you somehow seem to have room and energy to help me when I need something. Or I know you're quite religious, and religious people normally are wiped out and weary from all their religious activity, but you seem to play a lot. You seem to feast with friends. And not just in, in frivolous entertainment, but you seem to enjoy joyful, rich relationships. I'd like some of that too. And perhaps in such a dialogue exchange, you begin to reply, "What well, I'd like to share that I worship a God who loves me so much, he commands me to play. Do you know a God like that? Or where you begin to say, Jesus isn't looking for strong people who can do things for him. Rather, he loves weak people, tired people like you, like me. And he even says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11. You will find rest for your souls. Sabbath friends sabbath is one of the most attractive things in the world in our exhausted city it's one of the unique things that we find in the pages of scripture that emerges from the very heart of god Sabbath, friends, is not meant just for self care in a self indulging sense. Sabbath is meant as a witness to our neighbors of the grace and the rest and the replenishing reality of resurrection. Dead things coming to life, weary things finding the strength of God. What an invitation. What a witness. But not only is Sabbath a witness to our neighbors, I think it actually makes room in our lives to love our neighbors. To be attentive to those immediately around us. Uh, listen again to the words of Walter Brueggemann, so insightful here. He, he, he goes on to explain his insight that in a cultural system, in a society where there is no Sabbath, the effect is this, there are actually then no neighbors, only threats and competitors, You don't actually have engagement with one another side by side. You are face to face in confrontation. You don't have neighbors. You only have threats and competitors. Whether if that's competitors of those who are almost ahead of you, so you need to keep up with the Joneses or the whoever's is. Competitors because of their way of life exceeding, or maybe you feel shaming your life, whether next door or on social media. Competitors that quicken your pace just a little bit more. That's not a person to love. That's a person now to beat. Sabbathlessness makes neighbors into competitors. It also makes them into threats, Chief among which I think sometimes are threats to our convenience and threats to our focus on our work. In other words, where neighbors are not people, they're just interruptions. Uh, People and their neediness getting in the way of me doing what I need to be doing. Uh, Getting in the way of my productivity and my work, a threat to you finishing your work, a threat to you getting ahead. And maybe it's not the neighbors outside the room, maybe it's your roommates, your housemates, spouse, and your children who have now become competitors and interrupters in your life. Brueggemann asks, how does one regard the neighbor seriously when one has imbibed the profound anxiety of the cultural system? Sabbathlessness, he argues, makes neighborliness impossible. I saw this in myself even just a few weeks ago, a small thing, a small thing, being in- invited to a birthday gathering uh, to, in one of the homes of one of our neighbor's. On our block, Uh, something I wanted to attend, but just felt so exhausted and and drained. And of course, we all sit in those states sometimes, so I'm not bludgeoning myself for that. And yet I found myself because of my Sabbathlessness that I wasn't able to honor this friend, didn't find the energy to cross the street to love, to bless, to celebrate. And of course, I'm not saying it's wrong to maintain boundaries or to skip a birthday party once in a while, but it did make me think that had I found more Sabbath in my soul and in my body, it would have been one more opportunity to be a friend. Have you ever felt that before? If if I was just more fully replenished, I might be able to be a better friend, a more faithful neighbor. How true is that for so many of us? Sabbath restores the possibility of neighborliness. Brueggemann says one more time, in Sabbath, we are, quote, Invited to the awareness that life does not consist in frantic production and consumption that reduces everyone else as a threat and competitor. And as the work stoppage permits a waning of anxiety, so energy is redeployed to the neighborhood. The odd insistence of God is to counter anxious productivity with committed neighborliness. The latter practice creates an environment of security and respect and dignity that redefines the human project. The waning of anxiety so that this now Replenished source of energy is redeployed not to my productivity or not to the security of my own self image, keeping up, but now deployed in the direction of the needs and the life of my neighbor with joy. What a vision! What a purpose God has given to us, even in our Sabbath, not to be an exercise in self indulgence but other-facing, neighborly love. Well, thirdly and lastly, Sabbath is for refreshment. Sabbath is for freedom. Sabbath is for our neighbors. Sabbath is for refreshment. Even as we talk about that replenishment, that refreshment that we need as we give and serve and love our neighbor, we seek to be replenished as we cease, restore, and feast. You see, this is what we have to remember again and again. Sabbath is not just an absence of busyness, it's the presence of refreshment and delight. That's what we're seeking, that's the goal. And it looks like a few things, if I could just put out a a, a couple themes that we can linger over together today and throughout the coming week. This refreshment entails joy. It entails seeking out things that help us to recover joy. This begins, of course, in being replenished with the grace of God as we spend time with him, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, spiritual rest in abiding in Christ through God's word and prayer. We're tackling that in the month of November. But it also requires doing things that we just simply love as part of the art of refreshment. John Ortberg, a pastor and author, writes this about the important role of celebration in our practice of Sabbath. He says, Devote a specific day to acts of celebration so that eventually joy will infuse your entire lives. One day a week, eat foods that you love to eat. Listen to music that moves your soul. Play a sport that stretches and challenges you. Read books that refresh your spirit. I love this one. Orberg writes, wear clothes that makes you happy. There's wisdom there. Surround yourselves with beauty, we'll come back to that. And as you do these things, give thanks to God for his wonderful goodness. Take the time to experience and savor joy then direct your heart toward God so that you come to know that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Who doesn't want a little bit of that? A taste of joy, feasting on the gifts of God. And so, of course, the challenge for us is to make like Maria in the sound of music recall those things that are these things that are a few of my favorite things and make a list and apply yourselves to them whenever you practice Sabbath, joy. Secondly, change to briefly return to the topic that I introduced in the beginning. You know, it's true, sometimes we do need to just veg out But that's not all that Sabbath requires, and certainly it's not the heart of what it requires. It's not just vegging out. Sometimes Sabbath replenishment actually might look and feel quite engaged, quite deliberate, quite active. Why? Because you might be focusing your body, your mind, your soul on something, but remember change? The point is that it's a different thing. I remember years ago, in the middle of writing a master's thesis, pouring in sometimes 12-plus hours a day into books and books and research and research, one day, taking a trip, this is years ago, down to the Potomac River, this is before I lived here, I have no idea where we went, Some random kayak rental store where three of my friends, two of my friends and I, rented kayaks, got into them, and just started rowing down the Potomac River. Apparently, upstream both ways. I'll tell you how that happens. It's possible. I'll tell you. But I tell you, in that season of life, for all the mental exertion that I was applying day in and day out... What I needed, what was so refreshing to me, was the hard pulling of these these paddles again and again. It, It wasn't just the release of focus, it was a redirection of my focus to that darn river, fighting against the current. Pushing up and then accomplishing, conquering the Potomac River in our little kayaks. That physical exertion was exactly the change that my body and my soul needed. It wasn't a lack of exertion. It was a different kind. See, again, Sabbath doesn't mean just vegging out. It might just be reapplying energy and focus to a different thing which for some of you might mean taking a nap, because that might be the most different thing for you. Again, being holy means being different. Sabbath doesn't just mean doing nothing. Churchill himself said that one reason that he loved to paint is because it, quote, entirely absorbs the mind and because he's fully, quote, concentrated on the task. This is what he wrote. Whatever the worries of the hour and the threats of the future. And remember, this is someone that was living and leading through World War II. Whatever the worries of the hour and the threats of the future, once the picture has begun to flow along, there's no room for them in the mind. Do you hear that? The question is not how are you emptying yourself? It's what other things are you filling yourself with? Such that there's no room for them in the mind. In these moments of painting, Churchill didn't plan the next counterattack against the Nazis. He wasn't writing his next speech in his head. He wasn't working on a new political strategy to bring before parliament. He was painting and he was absorbed in the creation of beauty, which brings me to the practice of beauty. Because I think that's also part of the secret of Churchill's successful application of rest and refreshment. We are called to feast on beauty and so replenish our bodies and our souls. Uh, Last year, we invited psychiatrist and author kurt thompson to speak to us in the middle of the pandemic about the trauma that we are collectively experiencing and what our way out is spiritually speaking and he called us to the practice of immersing ourselves in beauty and i think though that has particular relevance to a people enduring trauma i think it's also true simply of the way that god designed us Physiologically, spiritually, and otherwise, in our practice and experience of Sabbath. We are to immerse ourselves in beauty, activating our brain's right hemisphere's mode of engaging the world. The aesthetic recovery of our soul, which for so many of us is precisely the kind of change that we need for effective Sabbath where we're not just engaging the analytical sides of life as so many of you engage day to day and hour upon hour throughout your day, but now, bloop, switch over. Listen to music. And by that, I don't just mean having it in the background, which is what we do and which the earbud world that we live in, this generation now, does. All the music is just background. I I think what immersing ourselves in beauty through the medium of music might mean is when you sit down and sure, put on your earbuds or just pump up the speakers and actually listen closely, take it in the gift that God has given to us in music, really listening to the beauty of God's creation through music, or maybe not music, maybe for you it's poetry that you're reading and taking real slowly, or maybe it's visual art. Maybe it's engaging the beauty of God's created world in nature, taking a walk and, and, and smelling the air and seeing the trees and the flowers or watching the animals or whatever it might be. For you, maybe it might be just eating really good food. John Orberg talked about that in that quote a second ago, right? Eating food that you love. And I don't mean, that doesn't mean it has to be expensive five-star. I mean, if it's Chef RD, you do it. Whatever you crave. Brother Michael and I, a couple weeks ago, were laughing about how the McRib is coming back. We need to hit that joint up. Right? What brings delight, whatever it might be for you to immerse yourself in beauty, to create beauty as part of your Sabbath practice, both the beauty of our Creator, Redeemer, encountered in Scripture, in prayer, and in worship, this is beauty encounters too, as well as the beauty of created things, found and encountered in nature, and art, and food, and music, and replenishing relationships, people, the crown of God's creation. The trick of Sabbath, I think, is to identify those things as we tried to do the first week we brought this subject up as part of our homework. What are those things that work for you? What are the things that you love? What are the things that your heart delights in? Identifying that and start to pursue those things because in my experience, you won't stop that ceasing part. You won't stop unless you have something to look forward to. Unless there's beauty or joy or delight or replenishment that you've learned to say, I need that, I want that, I love that, and through that, that I love God. We won't actually do these things until you have rightly identified and begun to instill in your lives something to look forward to, something that your soul craves. Which brings me to our conclusion here, to wrap it up here. And as we do this day in and day out, again, this isn't just a weekly practice, but a rhythm even throughout the day. As we do this, we're nurturing in our hearts the hope of heaven. How so, you say? Well, remember Hebrews 4, the last reading in our sequence of readings. Let me read it one more time. There remains then... A Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Here the Bible is describing heaven. And it's describing heaven as a place of ultimate Sabbath rest. A place of never ending Sabbath. And what that means is that each day, each week that you practice the rhythms of Sabbath, you are giving yourself a little foretaste of heaven. You are reenacting the story of redemption, the exhaustion of work, and then the replenishment of rest. The exhaustion of work, and then the replenishment of rest again. Until one day... After you practice this day in and day out and week in and week out and you rehearse and reenact this story, work and rest until one day when Jesus returns, the exhaustion finally ceases and the day of eternal rest finally arrives and it never ends Do you see, friends, by practicing Sabbath, we're not just seeking rest for today. We're training our hearts to anticipate Sabbath every day for eternity, right with God, reunited with the God of Sabbath, the God of eternal rest. You're stoking the appetites of your soul. It's true each week and each day you need something to look forward to in order to learn to stop in Sabbath. Sabbath is the ultimate way to cultivate the looking forward to the day of heaven, the eternal day of Sabbath. And friends, make no mistake. The longing of our hearts is not just for rest, but rather for the God in whom rest is found. As Marva Don, a theologian, says, one more time: keeping a Sabbath day is not the answer; it is the way to the answer. And that answer, of course, is a deeper way into the heart of God, and a deeper way into God. Here's the invitation. Sabbath will you take it will you receive God let's pray so we long for you or at least God we're learning to long for you we're asking that you will cultivate such an appetite the longings of our hearts for a rest found uniquely in you Please give it to us. Thank you that you already hold it out to us in Christ and in the wisdom of your saints, teaching us how to practice this rest. Send us
0: your spirit now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.